Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Chris Keithley, and I'll be your host. And I'm joined today by my co-host, the wondrous Amos King and Nebulous Anna Naysberg. Say hi, everybody. Hello. This season's theme is adopting Elixir, and we're joined today by special guests, Justice, Eric, and Sunday. Say hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Yeah, we're so glad you guys could be here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> it's really a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this moment my entire life. I'm sure you have. I, I love moment. I love this idea, right? Of, I thought it would be fun as someone who has been on the other side of the podcast game, right? I thought it'd be fun to give all y'all a chance to talk through your own ideas, right? Like to, you know, because often like when you're doing this, right, you're sitting and listening to the guests. You want to like give the guest time to speak. You don't get to like always get into all of your feelings about a topic, right? Because you're trying to be respectful of their time and everything. And now the floor is yours. It's open, right? It's open for whatever you want to say, right? That's what we're really creating here today is a moment to get all the takes and all the feelings and all that stuff you just have to hold back during a normal episode. Now you get to like cut loose. So this was your idea? Yes. <laughs> Wait, Jeez, no, it was Eric my came idea. Up with it. No, no. <laughs> no. No. Oh man, this was a good idea then. Chris? Chris? <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's a good idea. Chris told me about it and then I was pairing with Eric and I told Eric about it. So you're kind of like last to know Justin. Wait, I didn't know yeah. about it. That's pretty normal. Y'all don't tell me anything either, so it's fine. <laughs> no, we talked about this. <laughs> I'm just an ideas man, right? Like I, like uh-huh. I don't, you know, I don't, Sorry, I, I don't I make that. anything happen. I think the idea, right, is to. I mean, we wanted to go into this new. Y'all are having a, starting a new season. You're approaching a new topic for this season. The topic, like I said, is going to be adopting elixir. And so I am curious to kind of dig into it and find out, you know, how did you adopt elixir? Like, how did y'all get into this into this whole thing? We might have covered this a few times in different episodes or whatever, but the original, we had a coworker, Travis, who used to work here and has since left, but he was interested in in Elixir and functional programming. And we had a small project. It was like two weeks long. So if it, if Elixir turned out to be junk, then we could rewrite it in Rails real quick and it would, it would be fine. Luckily, I think that thing is still chugging along four years later without anyone doing anything to it on some Heroku app somewhere. And it went well. And that like caught my interest um, after he kind of showed it off. And I think change sets were the original thing that I was like most intrigued by coming from a, a Rails callback land and all the pain that comes with that sometimes. And so we did another project that went most of the way and and then pittered out for various reasons the startups will and that was our first time using channels i think and doing a chat app and all the fun stuff that you do with that yeah and then after that i think we had dan likes to say we've started like 22 new applications and only one of them has been elixir since we've like made the jump (laughs) Which is always, uh, I don't know, it's like a, a cool... Oh, only one of them was not Elixir. Correct, yeah. Yeah, and then that was because we thought we were going to hand it off to a team that knows Rails, and then we just ended up being their whole team the whole time, so we could have just done it in Elixir and been fine. <laughs> 
I basically learned Elixir as part of that process because I joined the team probably the month that Travis, the maybe the month after. It was definitely within like a couple of months of Travis sort of bringing Elixir into the fold here at Smart Logic. Sunday, I actually don't know how you. I guess. Oh Kava? yes, yes. I, apparently, before this call started, he thought I was the Elixir community guru, and that I knew everybody, and then I mentioned I hadn't never actually met everyone here yet. And it all came out. So uh, yeah, it was at Kava. You know, the back end was Elixir, front end was React. I knew React going in, but not Elixir. And they said, no, no worries. We'll teach you. Spent about two months just kind of getting ramped up on it. And then they sent me to Lone Star Elixir in 2019. That's when I met Justice and Eric and uh, took my first course with Bruce Tate. And just it's fun from there. I got really excited about the community after that, that conference. And started getting more involved with DC Elixir. I was always into meetups and I really wanted to help that meetup grow in our area, in the DC area. So I had a more active role in that. And just from that, just got more into writing it. As I wrote it more, I just loved it more. It was just, I mean, I was coming from JavaScript and (laughs) we've talked about this a little bit on the show, but it just didn't click for me the way Elixir does. I always say Elixir to me reads like English. And if you really write good Elixir code, you can show it to someone who, who can't program at all and they'll know what's going on if you really write it well. That's that's always been my take. So that's sort of been my my journey in the Elixir world. That's where, awesome. Where did you all start out in your career as, as a developer? What was your first foray into software? So professionally was actually this job. Non-professionally was the... My math teacher taught me basic on the TI-83, and then English class was never the same as I hit a calculator and made RPGs. <laughs> Perfect. What about the rest of y'all? Someone in college had a, like an underground market of games you could buy from him that were all like TI-89 and TI-83 games, all in basic. Like I remember, like I think I paid him like five bucks for Asteroids or something like that. Just for him to like, he just had these and he just been like wire. He had the whole thing where he could like, you know, it's like he had, it's the, whatever the headphone jack was, right? Because here's the thing, anything can be a serial port if you try hard and believe in yourself. <laughs> so you like, you can just, he just had the little like headphone jack. He wired it up, sent it over to me. It was made a lot of like material science classes a lot more bearable. That's hilarious. Yeah, a lot of people were into the calculator stuff. I don't feel like... If I had to predict that this was the path I was going to go down, I don't I don't know that I could have. I was like very heavy on the art side, on the like English side. I really liked writing and drawing and all of that stuff. And I was really bad at math. So I just really didn't think this was going to happen. But I think what was my first job internship, I guess. I was a computer science major. I don't know. That just happened. What made you decide to do that? like mostly that my parents just wanted me to and I didn't know what I wanted to major in sure. I went to a state school so I figured if I wanted to change my mind it would be easy I did in fact change my mind I actually graduated with an art degree but I was coding the whole time I was doing like coding to make art and coding in internships and all that stuff outside of school and then in school with painting so you know it worked out that's awesome yeah I always call it my great hack of college I had a lot of free time. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, see, my, my hack of college was taking computer science because I had a lot of free time too. <laughs> was computer science an easy... Ma- I mean, so I didn't study computer science in college, but 
sounds like you're saying it's an easy major, but it sounded to me like I think he was just bragging. Yeah, it was easy for me. This this is my friend was constantly he he did was an art major and he never had free time. So that was my takeaway. Also, you could get a degree to the college I went to without actually programming, which is interesting. That's interesting. Yep. (laughs) How does that work? Whatever they did, the CS and CIS degrees, so what computer information systems were taking mm. the same courses. It's like college level A+. plus. Yeah, so you could weasel your way through and write term papers instead of programming for most of the courses and oh. still get a bachelor's in CS. <laughs> Isn't it easier just to write the code? Yeah. See, that's I my thought. Like <laughs> yeah, like I, I would so much rather have just written code for every exam. <laughs> so like that'd yeah. be fine. But writing I, code on paper was really I, hard. It oh, was yeah. really confusing. Yeah. Agreed. You didn't have to do that, Wait, Eric? I totally had to do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, did, I, you, I did. did you get a computer science degree? Or no, I got a I got an electrical engineering degree. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. So I had like two C actual quote unquote CS classes, right? And it was basically intro to C <laughs> is what it really was. But yeah, like one of our tests was literally you had to write code semantically correct and like syntactically correct C with a piece of paper. <laughs> it was obscene. That's what terrible. always got me. There would be like a bunch of little red circles at the end of the lines, like you forgot your semicolons. On every one of these brackets yeah. don't match. That's yeah, enough oh, on an man. editor, <laughs> right? Where there's something helping you. Oh my god! At least it wasn't handwritten lisp. Oh. Well, that would have been better. That would have been so much better. <laughs> I would have never. Then C plus plus. Yes. Did all of you do, except for Sunday because you did art? But it still sounds like so you did I did. Computer science I was a computer science major for two years, okay. and then it was really, really hard for me. So I switched after my first boss, my first ever job. He told me, if you're really struggling that much, you really don't have to graduate with a CS degree to do this job. And that was the first time anyone had told that to me. So I went home. I told my dad. He was like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, art. He was like, hmm. I said, but my boss said I could be a front end engineer. And then my my dad like took that. He took a night, like took a day, maybe like 24 hours. He looked at he looked it up online and he said, yeah, front-end engineers look like they have a salary range of this to this. Okay, you can do that. And I was like, <laughs> I was good. I didn't have a choice. I had retaken calculus too many times to continue anyways. So there was really no choice there. <laughs> so oh, man. Funny. I did not get a CS degree. I got a degree in political science and chemistry. Oh, really? I mm-hmm. also studied poli-sci and uh, econ and philosophy. That. Yeah. Oh, okay. that's a, such a, that's so accurate. I was going to ask I'm you, so Justice, surprised. what did you? <laughs> yeah, I would have never guessed, actually. <laughs> I mean, if you just listen to the show, you might not know. You know, I don't, I actually, but I I did not finish. I was kicked out for being too radical. But it was funny because while I was in college, I was making money writing people's papers and making WordPress sites and like stuff like that. It was like a natural transition to get, to have to go and then like make money kind of in like fake startup land. I'm just curious as what kind of radical thinking. Yeah, what happened? Philosophy and I'm, political science. Well, okay, so I'm not going to get into the radical part, but I will tell uh, at West Virginia, I went to state school too. I went to West Virginia University and they had what's called a multidisciplinary study. So you could make your own major out of three minors. And so Oxford had a program for political science, economics, and philosophy. And that was, I was like obsessed with that stuff even in high school or like even before that probably. And so I knew I was like, Oh, this will make college so easy for me if I can take these. And, and I actually did it even, even worse. I'll tell you guys, if you go to 
a lot of schools have this thing called like the interstate common market or something like that. And basically it's like a rule where if you declare a major that's not offered in your home state, you can get in-state tuition at an out-of-state school. And at West Virginia, you could declare a major, but take whatever credits you wanted. So I took credits for like the major I wanted, but declared some like made up major, like sports physiology or like journalism or some nonsense like that in order to get in-state tuition. And then what I did was I helped all my friends, I helped all my friends do the same thing. Anyone that was from like Pennsylvania, New Jersey in this interstate common market thing, I helped them save money. And then their parents would give me like a 10, like part of their savings. So the the difference was huge, right? Like you're going from like 35 (laughs) grand a year to like, 15 grand a year and it was like oh yeah i'll give you fifteen hundred dollars to do that for me and I wish uh, the listeners could see our faces right now <laughs> i just yeah, love man. that you're like i love that i love that the school is like you can't just have that major because you said you want that major and you're like i didn't say it i declared it <laughs> well, that's exactly it. you would declare a major and you would go to your advisor and your advisor would be like well in order to do that major you're going to need to take these classes but you go and register for classes completely separately mm-hmm. i was just in all these philosophy and econ and like you know, poli sci courses, just dodging for the life of me, anything math related. Yeah. It worked out great until, I don't know. Until you got kicked out. Yeah. Until second semester of sophomore year. Different story. One day I'd love to, if I'm ever like, if this podcast ever gets big, I would love to do like an exposure on that. (laughs) It'll be a fun story, but uh, not today. I thought I was a rebel because I audited typography. What does that mean? What does that even mean? I just like sat in on a typography class. Auditing a class is not illegal, Keith. No, I know. Like I just did it though. (laughs) It's really hard to write other people's papers without auditing. They don't freaking take attendance. You just show up. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. Like I went to a big state school. So like all the UCs, like the classes are like 500 people. So nobody. So so which school is that, Anna? Uh, UC San Diego. Nice. And Sunday, what state school did you go to? University of Maryland College Park. Oh man, you guys went to good ones. <laughs> Over yeah, here, like West yep. Virginia University, like best known for burning couches. Um, I will say the best, that I the recently, best at burning couches, right? Best I recently best went known. to. <laughs> Listen, no, no, there's no such thing as bad press. <laughs> I went to WVU last year to help out with the electrical engineering robotics competition thing with the mm. IEEE stuff I do. And I was sincerely impressed by everything I saw. So I don't know. They seemed really impressive to me. It's actually, I mean, one thing I learned about state universities is just they have so many resources that they can provide amazing facilities and amazing programs in like whatever they're good at. You know, like West Virginia had a really good petroleum engineering program and a very good business program and a pretty good poli-sci program. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely benefits to just going to a big school for no other reason that they offer a lot of resources. Did you see yourself programming while you were there? No, it's my dad was a tech guy growing up. And so I thought it was nerdy and boring. And I don't know about you guys, if you had technical parents, but my dad growing up, I'd want to go online and play games on cartoonnetwork.com or whatever. And you'd have to like download, you know, the newest flash version. And I'd be like, dad, how do I install flash? Cause I'm like six. And he's like, I don't know, figure it out. (laughs) I'm like, all right, well, you're very helpful. IT professor. He was literally the chief information officer of the County that I lived in. Like he knows stuff. And he would just pretend. So, so I have a, I have a quote for you from a friend. My friend's father works as a like handyman, and I think his grandfather or something asked like, "Why is there your house always in state of like fixing up or whatever? Like you never finish project." And then his single response was, "The cobbler's son has no shoes. So he just didn't <laughs> want to do it." <laughs> That's so funny. That's really funny. I'm super curious. 
So smart logic itself, right, is you basically have one champion who just says, I want to do Elixir. Yeah, I was curious. And then just too. makes it happen. That's super interesting. And there's a bunch of things that I, I want to like dive into there. One is as a consultancy, anytime you stake your consultancy on a tech, right, there's like an inherent risk there. So I'm super interesting and interested to see how that all went. Beyond that too, like I want to circle back to the comment you made earlier, something about like that Elixir reads to you like English. And that's super, like I super want to delve into that at some point. Like I want to come back around to that as well. But just because I think that's, that's an interesting take. That's like a very different take than I think a lot of people have when they look at the language, especially if you've got a number of programming years under your belt or whatever. So that's super interesting to me too. So I want to circle back to both of those, but we'll start with the smart logic thing. Cause I think that's interesting. Well, not well and I want to add to your smart logic question, like in addition to just adopting a tech and putting time into it, was there any, like were folks just all psyched or was there any, like, was it hard to get other folks at smart logic psyched about learning and picking up new tech or like, what was that process like? I'm curious about that in addition to Keith Lee's question. So as far as that went, I think it was just, Travis was the only one excited. I remember being down on Elixir because I was like, Ugh, functional programming. It's just going to be like parens and everywhere and it's going to be super academic and no thank you. <laughs> I think it was kind of up until we did that project and then he had was either there was like a lunch talk or two of like intro to Elixir kind of like walking through the project, like how did it go retrospective type thing. And so I think that was where that was the day that caught my eye and started looking more into it. And so I think that was just kind of, I got interested, a few others got interested, and then that was kind of how we spurred that off, I think. And were you already getting a lot of Elixir work or was that like, what came first? We became interested and kind of made Elixir happen for clients. Cause like we had a few that came in and said, I just have this idea, make it. And we said, okay, we're going to use Elixir. And they go, I don't know what that is. Sure. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) As long as it works, that's like all we care. What were the size of, of the clients that were allowing you to do that? Cause in my experience, bigger clients have a tendency to say, heck no, here's what you're using. And little clients are like, I don't care. But I was wondering about your experience, if you had had been able to sell it to bigger clients or not. So the f- very first project, I'm not entirely certain. I think they're on the website, but I'm not super sure. So I'll leave it sort of vague, but they're a very big company. But this is this was like a slide in the door, behind the, in the back door, because this is it was just some like HR tiny little app that they just needed to help. It's like schedule people working on different things. The next app was a small startup. There was three people, four people, I think, just kind of like ideas people. And they were totally self-funded because it was just, yeah, and they just didn't care. So That's cool. As you're starting to take on more clients, right? As you're starting to, or not even take on more clients, but that's wrong way to say it. But as you're starting to build Elixir applications for more clients, right? And this kind of gets back to my earlier question about, I think it's awesome that anyone in the world has said, I think Elixir is like super easy to read because I agree with that, but I'm also not able to emotionally distance myself at this point from the way I feel about this. So what does that onboard look like, right? You get people excited. And obviously if you're excited about something, you're more apt to learn it, right? But what do you do as a company who thinks that this is like the way to go? And like, how do you start training people? How do you get mm-hmm. people, uh, like, how do you get your your staff excited about it? Like, what does that look like? What are the resources that you're going to 
to be able to do that. I can speak a little bit to my onboarding process at, at Kava, like not knowing the language. Like I said, I knew one of the languages, right? I knew React, mm -hmm. I knew JavaScript. So I remember my first few weeks I was given, you know, I think it's really productive in a first week of onboarding to assign somebody something real to do, something small, but real, tangible. So they get a feel for the process and how to work with the team. And they don't just feel like they're sitting in onboarding meetings for the full week and give them a small win, essentially. And that's what I got. I, I think I literally just had to add a button to a page on the app. And I did it in React and I got familiar with the code base and sort of how everything runs. Like I actually had to run the, the backend server, you know, run the IAX session to run it locally. And then that's how I got familiar with like the IAX session. But I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, you know, doing that to get to the React part. And, you know, I, I solved one little bug in, in React. And then I was on my way. And then we started like delving into Elixir once I was comfortable with, with you know, the team and the setup and how the daily standups and the dynamic worked so that I could, you know, not learn everything new all at once. But yeah, I, I don't know, Justice, how was your first learning Elixir? What did it look like to you when you first saw it? So I don't even remember what the specific project was, so I cannot give away any proprietary details, but I just remember being kind of put on a project and asked to build some features and having to learn it. The one thing to, that does stand out as being a turning point in my learning Elixir would be like a few weeks in pattern matching, like just kind of clicking in my head and becoming this amazing superpower that I wish I had in all my programming languages. So I think that that was like the, the hurdle that once you leap it of understanding what it is and why it's valuable. And when I say pattern matching, I don't just mean um, in the context of a variable assignment or whatever. I, I also mean like function declarations and kind of all of the features in Elixir that are mm -hmm. related to that. That for me was like the hurdle that once I leapt it, the beauty of the language became super apparent to me. I had that moment too with pattern matching. I don't remember when it was, but I remember it happening. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised people don't talk about it more because so many people come from the Ruby community and outside of pattern matching, there's all, so many similarities. And it seems like the first thing that's like a real big paradigm shift that changes your ability to be productive and write beautiful code. Yeah. And I think maybe, Chris, to, to your point about like the way it looks to me that makes it easier to read is, I mean, if you think about a JavaScript function, you know, it's a function to do something and then you have to defensively program against like, it's not null. And the thing that you're reading from that object that's not null, it also can't be null. And then, you know, you have to do a few checks and a few other things. And at some point your if statement looks pretty nasty. I call it the nasty if you've got like several, and, and then there are ways to clean that up, of course, but maybe your, your natural, my natural disposition is always to write it, <laughs> write it terribly and then fix it. Come, write down what comes to my head and edit it later. That helps me think through the way I'm going to write it. You know, when you look at it that way, and then you then you start seeing like the arrow functions were confusing to me because all of a sudden there were so many things that were gone, and I didn't know what any of the symbols meant. Just mm -hmm. you know, by looking at it now, it's like muscle memory. But you know, for somebody who's who's trying to get used to coding, like in in general, to see a lot of symbols and not know what they mean, how do you know that that's returning? implicitly without a return like there were just so many things you had to know to know how it was working and it was just really hard to look at and, and read without really knowing it and this is when I was of course learning JavaScript and then when I was learning Elixir 
I didn't feel like there were hidden things that were happening. I didn't feel like there was magic happening. I could see what was going on and I could follow the code. And I really liked, like, I think Justice, what did you call it? The pattern matching of the functional definitions? Function declarations? Yep. Fun- There's a real name for that, isn't there? <laughs> clause. But yes. Mm-hmm. Fun- function clause. Function clause. Yeah. clause. Mm-hmm. Like talons clause? Yeah. Or? yeah, yeah. Like, 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 like <laughs> yeah. those you might find upon a Kestrel. <laughs> Whoa, Speaking of D and D, bird reference. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, once once you start looking at it that way, and you you know you see, I had to explain to so many people at first, like who weren't Elixir uh, writers or devs, and they were like, "Why would you write this function declaration twice, three times? Why don't you just like handle it all in one place?" And I was like, "Why would you handle it all in one place? <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to follow." This way, you can like log each one and see which one gets called if you're confused. Like, I don't know. It's just also a lot of it has to do with naming things properly. You can write, it's possible to write bad elixir code where, you know, it's hard for people to follow it. That's obviously possible. That's possible in every language. But in elixir, when you write a function definition and you really do a good job of creating and following a convention, I think it's easy to follow and swap things in and out and really like trace the code down. I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's much easier just to read it. So with that being easier to read, is it also when you start on something new, are you are you able to get to code faster than you were with JavaScript? Or are you getting to code faster with JavaScript, but happier with the Elixir that's coming out? I think there are different situations. I think when I remember one time, there was one moment at Kava where our product manager wrote the most beautiful ticket the most technical ticket and there was like really good acceptance criteria. And there was like a nice to have like it at the bottom of the ticket. And I remember looking at the nice to have and being like, I know how to write this in Elixir. I know exactly what I need to do. I know like how to write this fallback case. That was the nice to have. And I just went for it and it like went, it was clear. I can't say I ever had that moment in JavaScript, but I don't know. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. I didn't stay in the the community long enough. Yeah. (laughs) I've been writing a lot of JavaScript these days and it's just JavaScript. Trying to throw it a bone. <laughs> I think there there is something to the idea too, and I've experienced this so many times where it there's something I've been trying to work on like a grand unified field theory thing for like for Elixir and my happiness with it, but there is something my ability to solve a certain subset of problems is just easier. It's mm-hmm. like it's just like I don't I'd have to like really stop and think. If I was gonna do this in C, I'd have to like really stop and think about like what I'm going to, how I'm going to go about it or Java or anything like that. And I'm like, Oh, I just do this. And part of that's familiarity for sure. But part of it's, there is just like the runtime and everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say that the time that this really shone through for me, what you're talking about right now is I spent the entire summer job searching. I landed working at SmartLogic in August, but I spent the whole summer job searching. And every time I had to do the dreaded code interview, they would give it to me and they'd ask me to, I mean, I was looking for both, you know, JavaScript and Elixir jobs. My preference was Elixir, but Elixir market this summer was really hard. And I remember every time I got a JavaScript code challenge, I would look at it and I'd be like, I know how to do this in Elixir, Mm -hmm. but I have no idea how to tackle this in JavaScript. And it would take me so much longer. And I don't know, it was rough. I now know that I need to, I need to do both. in order to not lose one or the other, you know, over time, you're going to lose whatever you're not using. Mm -hmm. That was definitely hard. I will say that while I was writing Elixir at Kava, I very rarely did JavaScript. So that's definitely why that was harder for me this summer. 
And Keithley can relate. You can ask him about trying to write a UI widget not too long ago. Oh yeah, it took, it took me all day. day. It took me all day. I made a modal though, but at the end of the day, that modal both appeared. <laughs> <laughs> so nailed it. You mentioned something about having good conventions, and as we're talking about teams starting to bring Elixir into their stack, right, and and level up the people who are who you know your employees, and level up everybody uh, who's working with you. Are there conventions that y'all have adopted as a company that you found to be like really useful? I know that at one point I remember, I think some one of y'all was talking about like name changes you've made to like the Phoenix, the standard like Phoenix directories and stuff like that. You're like, this should just be every, everything, right? That's the kind of idea, right? There's like those tactical sort of conventions that you you've placed inside your own projects. Is there stuff like that that you have? Yeah, so anytime we start a new Phoenix project, I guess as of March-ish, this was the case, we would do a Phoenix new and then I would immediately, I have like a suite of things that I would run through and just like clean it up. So I would move the like app web to just be web and then Mm -hmm. update all the references for that. And I think there was, at this point I can't remember another and I'm like mixing in some rails things. Cause for some reason I want to say drop spring boot, but that's obviously not here. <laughs> um, Just have it force of habit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now, so now we have a called Stein example. So this is an application that uses a library that is pretty close to the PHX gen auth, whatever the, that package is. Oh, um, right. So right. it has like, it's devised super light. So it just comes with like common things that, like looking up an email and verifying its password and like making sure that if the email isn't found, it does the bcrypt, like no opt whatever. So that the, like to try and prevent timing attacks and all that. It also sets up like it comes with user auth. It comes with password resets and all that junk that like the first week of a project is like the first thing you do every way is uh, uh, not like all the time. And eventually after like the sixth time of doing it is like, I'm so done with this. <laughs> like let's just copy paste and and like replace names and so that's what that project is now so it's kind of been i guess codified in terms of like what we do for a new project so now we can just clone the repo delete.git rename there's like four different git greps and seds that we can do and we have a new project that's like off to the races to start dropping in stuff nice that's cool. I would imagine that's also really helpful for like onboarding new folks and getting them started. Is that true? Yes. This also kind of bundles in like our deployment. So it comes with Roku, it comes with a Docker Compose and then normal deployment. And so it kind of tries to set up everything you would possibly need. And I th- we need to bump up its readme so that you can come with a better readme. But <laughs> I guess... Yes, hopefully having something more standardized across projects means that you can move around them easier. Totally. So um, after, oh, oh no, go ahead. No, go ahead. So I was, I, was, I was thinking a bit about, you know, so it sounds like you at this point are mostly, you know, everybody's learning via mentorship and just like common knowledge around the company and then whatever resources you get your hands on, right? Through the course of that, and just you're working with other new teams or, or new products, is like, do you feel like there's resources that I guess are missing, or like things that you would like wish you could point people to? I always thought 
that there was never a really good intro to Elixir resource out there when I was brand new. I had a five weeks lead time before my Kava job started. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, I know there's Christmas in here, but you know, it's five whole weeks. So maybe I'll look into it. And I just didn't see a lot of resources. Almost every book, you read the first page and it's like, this is an intermediate book where you have to have some familiarity with Elixir concepts. And I've always wished that there was something like that out there. So with the meetup, we did a few this year. So I'm like intro to Elixir and we advertised outside of the Elixir community to see, you know, more people would show up and like how they they like it. And Justice, we did talk a lot about pattern matching. My strategy for that was like, I just said, like, these are the shiny things that I love about Elixir. Uh, It was like half a pitch and half functional, or not functional. Yeah, no functional. I don't know. Yeah, it was half a pitch and half functional because I was like, these are the things that I like about it. These are what, this is why I think it's, it's great to work in. And here are the fun things you get to work with if you get to use it. And I think that fits really well into the the hour that meetups usually take. I think I would agree with you, Sunday. Like I think putting together intro resources, especially for folks that are new to the language and the paradigm and the ecosystem is really hard. And it's really hard to find good resources. Definitely experience that. Sorry, Justice, I totally cut you off. No worries. And I'll third that assertion because I agree that there need to be more introductory resources, but I will give people who are listening a, a hack which I learned in my very first job programming. So my very first job programming was the first employee at a company called Pavlock, which you can look up. It's amazing. I did not know what I was doing, building Rails APIs. And what I would do <laughs> is I would call my my good friend, Johnny Borsaquo, who's now like the, the big dog in the local Go community. And he would just help me. <laughs> and I would basically pay him out of pocket a lot of the times to like, kind of consult with me, but he often just helped me for free and helped me get a lot of stuff over the hump. And so, and I will reassure anybody who thinks that that sounds a, a little bit unusual by letting them know that I know I won't name names, even though I probably already named names in the past on the show about like who people who like work at one company who like trade open source work to do work on the company work. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody here knows because they've all heard the stories at conferences, but there's that kind of thing where you can reach out to people and get help, especially when you're just getting started and people definitely want to help folks who help themselves, right? Like not just like asking for free work. Nobody likes the guy on Stack Overflow who asks for full on solution to a problem, but the community is super duper helpful. And the other, I think hack would be, you know, like starting a podcast made it really easy for us to know all of the people in the community. I mean, like if I wanted to reach out to Renee Foring to talk about, you know, some issue I'm having with Credo, he would be there like that. Or if I needed mm-hmm. to talk to Frank about nerves, you know, anyone, they're always available. And I'm not saying go start a podcast, but I am saying that when you get involved in the community, you get more avenues of soliciting help. Yeah, that's definitely, that's, that's definitely, definitely been my, my experience as well. Like also don't start a podcast because apparently no one listens to them according to that, yeah, that, that, that you know, survey, that yeah. survey. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, that's totally been my experience of it. There's a reason that we can get certain fixes into certain libraries quickly, right? Because we know these people who work on those things, right? So if you have problems, you can just like hit those people up, which is really useful. But I would also say for folks that are getting started who don't have those resources, right? Like people in the community, I found generally, which is one thing that attracted me to the community however long ago, just been a while now, but like people generally are really nice and really helpful. And, and will you help could you reach out, out to anyone stuck. on this call, except for That's me. That's true. 
And because <laughs> he's going to be in Florida, he's he's out. <laughs> he's going to be in Miami. But he's going to be on a beach. Yeah, sorry. He's going to be living in his his uh, bathtub at whatever place. <laughs> uh, uh, can I wait? Let me just plug my good friends here because both Eric and Sunday were nominated to like these like influential technologist lists in DC and Baltimore, respectively. Eric doesn't even live in Baltimore, and he made this like list of influential technologists. <laughs> I'm over here jumping into bathtubs on camera in front of a thousand people, and nobody even people are just like, "Who?" Don't they don't know. have influential bathtub diving. It's just they did. It would be you. (laughs) I think you had to be the one of the highlights of ElixirConf. I knew people who didn't know anything about ElixirConf other than the fact that you hosted the whole thing from your bathtub. So this is how legends are born. Come on. (laughs) It's only going to get worse. The the rumors around that are only going to get worse. Two years from now, people are going to ask me about how weird that was. (sighs) Anyway, but congratulations really to Eric and Sunday because they actually deserve it. I feel like there was a question about onboarding, you know, new people and, and sort mm-hmm. of, we've said that their intro to re- intro to Elixir resources are hard to find, but I, I don't want anyone listening to think that there's a barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. I know I've actually like, while doing interview circuit this summer, I ran into a lot of companies that really wanted to move to Elixir and wouldn't or couldn't or didn't or any, you know, any of the negative reasons. And one that I heard a lot was just that they didn't know like their team didn't know Elixir yet, or only one person on the team had like a passion for the language and they were, there was only one basically. And mm. I think we've proven here that it can start with one. I think that generally if companies want to invest in themselves and their people, that putting good time in for training and whatnot is really not a waste. There are lots of trainings out there to put entire teams through to get them somewhere and developer happiness is a real thing. We move faster when we're really enjoying what we're doing and we're working with something that doesn't roadblock us every five seconds. I definitely have, I think we've all been in one of those languages Mm -hmm. at some point. So, you know, I ran into a lot of these companies and it was kind of the reason that I was really excited that we were going to be talking about adopting Elixir this season because I want to hear everyone's stories. I want to hear, you know, how companies onboarded people and like why they decided to go for the unknown quote unquote language that no one's heard of the niche language. I'm really excited to have those conversations with more people because I think it's really important for more people to hear it so that they can maybe maybe make the decision themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. And I didn't mean to imply like I would yeah, that statement was not to like discourage anybody from trying to join or learn. I was just I was just saying that like there are a couple of really good intro resources. To your point, like it's there are really good resources out there. I think it's just harder to put those resources together. So I really appreciate the ones that you do find. Well, then you, a lot of the beginning Elixir resources maybe don't necessarily have you knowing Elixir, but they expect you to know another programming language, exactly. which again, is like another barrier to enter. You either have resources that say you need to know some Elixir, like the basics, or you have something that says you need to know some other programming language. There's nothing out there that starts out at like that really basic level of this is what an integer is. Except for Elixir Bridge. Except for Elixir Bridge, yeah. I'm just kidding. How would you know about that, Anna? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Does Elixir Bridge actually do, like start at that level of granularity? Is the curriculum online and is it open source? Mm-hmm. And can it's I online and open source. Yes, we we're actually in the process. We just just like a month ago, we started doing a revamp because we took a break because we were pretty burnt out. Me and my Matt Mills, who's my co-founder for Elixir Bridge, um, and so we're like revamping it so that it's up to date, etc. But that's the intention. That's why we started it. Was 
it was like inspiration from RailsBridge to like help bring people into the community who are new to programming and in general. And there wasn't anything at the time. And we started it like four years ago, five years ago. I don't know. Um, Very cool. But just the idea. I'm just the point being like, I understand how hard it is having done it. So I really appreciate it when I find other people who have put the time and effort into it. And there's, I think there's still, this is an opportunity, right? For when I put that sort of spin on it. I think there is still a gap between here's the cool things you can build with Elixir and like, here's the thing running in production. That to me feels like the sort of the remaining like missing piece of it. Just that I think it's hard to take some of these ideas and then go apply them in production and then and see them like come to fruition, right? Especially if you want to actually sort of get all of it, right? Like if you if you want to like live the dream, it's harder. And it just is. It just is naturally harder to deploy and manage like a stateful Elixir system, right? If you, it, assuming that you want to do that, which I think that's a draw for some people. And there's like not a lot of resources on just how to do that. And definitely not like written resources, right? Like people have given talks on it and whatever, but like, there's not like a, like, here's all the steps you're going to need to go through. And the ones that do give you some kind of information are like, we assume, you know, you have a Kubernetes already. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, I can just go get one of those, I suppose, to deploy my like weekend hobby project on. It's a harder... I mean, it's just naturally harder, right? You can't just like windmill slam a random single threaded interpreted language into a Docker container and throw it up on Heroku, right? If you yeah. want to, you yeah. can do that, right? And you certainly can do that with Elixir that it, but I think a lot of people want the like, I want I all of it. I, I want the whole world, which is just naturally harder. You should probably take a break for anyone who's traumatized over the Kubernetes comments. Oh he yeah, sorry. He didn't say Terraform. <laughs> oh, I did. Oops. Oh no. Okay. I'll <laughs> You've see you named in five. The <laughs> oh, oh wait. Can we, can we, like, do we really need a break? No, I was joking. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Can, oh, is this going to become hashtag hates Kates? Cause I'm like, I'm all, I'm, 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 I'm in. <laughs> we have yet to get like a really robust hashtag started. And I, I think that we should go for it. I mean, why, why not? I need to see if, if our, uh, our if most Hates recent Kates is, is available. Our big most recent client is on Kubernetes. It's the future. Um, we just, there's a DevOps team. And all we say is like, I remember when we were starting this project, I was like, like we're under the assumption that I'm just going to make a Docker file. And when it starts, it's going to load our <laughs> binary and be off to the races. And I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. That's, <laughs> and that's where you, I mean, that's the thing is you need a DevOps team who can run. DevOps. A, yeah, DevOps. You need a DevOps team who can run your Kubernetes for you, or you need to pay someone else's DevOps team to run your Kubernetes for you, and then you're fine. You got to get a Kubernetes in there, and then you're good to go. And you, you need to get a DevOps team first. But yeah, your DevOps team has got to get that going. DevOps, the promise of DevOps was so good. And I'm sorry, but I was just going to do this for a second. But the promise of DevOps, it was like Agile, right? It was like capital A Agile was going to be so good. We had a whole manifesto. You know, DevOps had a book with weird prose in it that taught us all about talking to people and learning from everybody and had a phoenix involved. And then, and it was so good. And the promise was so good. And the walls that were between dev and ops were torn down and dev and, and ops were finally communicating again. And then ops was like, you know, what would be good here is a wall. And then they made a new wall, but this time they made it out of YAML and go. And then they <laughs> called it Kubernetes. <laughs> I feel like I'm probably contractually obligated to say that I love Kubernetes. <laughs> we, do plug, we do plug our Kubernetes apps on every episode of the show. So yeah, Smart Logic, we love it. <laughs> Smart Logic is a technology podcast which will deploy to Kubernetes for you. <laughs> and enjoy it. <laughs>
and love <laughs> and it. love it and love every mile the whole time. <laughs> All the yamels and the goes. Yeah, you just need uh, no goes. You need to get yamels no so that can generate no goes. Go is a no go. No goes. Go Has anyone so done cute. like a version of Kubernetes or some kind of like competitor that is not based in Go? Yeah, oh, not based in Go. Yeah, I don't know. Not aware. I think I Tristan know. talked about it doing it in Erlang as like a control plane thing, mm-hmm. but I don't know if anything ever came to fruition of, of that. Obviously, Nomad exists, right? But that's still all Go. So, anyway, oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, that'd be fun. It'd be cool. Anyway. So Kubernetes is a great futuristic technology that will certainly change the world. Anyway, this is <laughs> let's not start the adopting Kubernetes podcast. No, I was trying to stay on brand. So you all mentioned multiple times about a single person making the difference in in getting to Elixir. What are the main first steps that that single person can take to be successful in in your eyes? Well, they can use Emacs and just be smarter than everyone else generally. (laughs) Oh, snap. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) They just got done with the FP meetup group and they're talking about monads. (laughs) If you don't know what a monad is, go listen to our episode with Brooklyn Zelenka because that was the single best auditory explanation of a monad of all time. But no, seriously, I mean, Travis was just a very, very smart person. And I think that that... Yeah, he ended up uh, as a side project, started writing a Lisp interpreter in Elixir and like going through all of the all of that what goes with that and i think if you want to see a like 700 line cond there's one in there nice <laughs> oh that's awesome. yeah that, that's my jam that. i'm super excited about that i i can't say that i was here for when we presented elixir i was like travis was way before my time i can tell some listeners what maybe not to do <laughs> is uh just walk into the room saying that elixir is the best and you can't use anything else i think I think there's a particular, you know, way to approach it. You know, you are advocating for a language for your team to be using, your whole team will be using, and you love it. We've all worked with that one person who loves that one language and thinks everybody needs to come in and like change the whole company around it. And a lot of people for a long time when I was advocating for Elixir thought that I had become that for Elixir and they looked more into it or I was motivated to make the intro to Elixir talks for the meetups. And they heard it and they were like, okay, no, no, I see the appeal. I see why you're saying this. Like, it's not that far out. It's not that far-fetched. I think there's a balance there. You you know, you have to show your passion for it. But I think you really have to show the viability of it. My more serious hot take was that I don't think Elixir apps really crash in production as much as other languages. I don't know that I have lived on this planet enough to say that with confidence, but that has been my experience. So that's like the serious one. And then the more fun one is I always like to walk into a room and say that I didn't write a single if statement in 2019. And as a developer, nobody understands that unless they know what I'm talking about, Elixir-wise. I will also add a specific for smart logic in order to convince your team to take over a new language and framework and all that. I want to say we had 12 people at that time. So like the smallness of the company also helps in that a single person has that much more say when you're that small. How big is Smart Logic now? Twenty as yeah. of yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations yes. on the new hire. Thank you. Yeah. This year has been crazy growth for Smart Logic. I think the first several years I was here, we were kind of fluctuating from like nine to twelve employees. And mm-hmm. this year we've just exploded. 
I don't know why. I mean, what's unique about 2020? I don't know. Yeah, no, who knows? Who, who could, who who could knows? say? Yeah, it's yeah. pretty much just business as usual around here. I mean, uh, if you, I mean, I sit around, I sit around and I, I work at my house and I never leave. So it's just the same as far as I'm concerned. Nothing has changed in the exterior world. The people you've hired this year as you've grown, are they... I mean, are they coming to do Elixir or to do any of the other technologies that y'all sort of champion, right? So actually Kubernetes was one of our hires. A couple of those are designers as mm-hmm. we've you know provided more design. We've hired, if you bump Melvin into it, we've hired four developers. With so, Elixir experience. Yeah. Or- Joel, Joel is in the Indie Hackers group or Indie Elixir group and he's like, Wants to do Elixir, but was primarily Rails. Gotcha. Uh, Sunday, obviously, Melvin has been around the Elixir space, and then our, our our latest has Rails experience. So, gotcha. Yeah, so that's interesting, right? So then, once you go down that path, right, and you do pick these sorts of certain sets of technologies, especially in like a a more niche area, right? You do start to reap the benefits of that, like, because you can, you now are getting people who either are very passionate about the language and thus sort of just know stuff about it, or you've got people who have actual real experience with it, right? So, you know, the training part of it, you're sort of starting to arbitrage essentially, right? You know, as you start to bring more people in. That's, I mean, we've definitely experienced that at Bleacher Report, right? It was a place to come and do Elixir. And so a lot of people were there it became very telling to me when all of a sudden you couldn't count on Ruby knowledge as a given anymore at Bleach mm. Report. Like we turned a corner where all of a sudden people were being asked to work on Ruby stuff. And they're like, I've literally never written a line of Ruby before. Like, I don't know why you're asking me to do this or why you expect me to know how to do this. Like I know how to do Elixir, right? Like we turned that corner at some point. That's pretty impressive. And I'll say a sort of, Along similar lines, I guess. So, so Melvin went to Turing and they do rails there. And mm-hmm. like when he was exiting that and starting to look for jobs, one of the hacks he did was to specifically learn Elixir and look for Elixir jobs because there is way less people looking for those. And so then it was easier to like get your foot in the door and not just be one of a thousand resumes at, like at a rails job. Right. Um, so that's a nice little Yeah, hack. that's fair. I will say though, that looking for, while looking for Elixir jobs this summer, I noticed for the job market, well, also the 2020 summer job market was a different job market than anyone will hopefully ever see again. But it was mostly senior Elixir engineering roles. And I was just waiting. Oh, I love it when recruiters are like, oh, you need 10 years of experience in this language. And I'm like, that's longer than it's existed for. I really just, I really want to have that moment one day. But anyways, I saw a lot of, you know, requests for senior engineers for Elixir specifically. And I was like, how can you ask that for such a young language? But I saw it quite often. But what I really didn't see was a lot of people hiring for junior engineers for Elixir. And I mean, I wasn't looking for that because that wasn't my my level, but I just was really shocked. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. not shocked, but kind of sad to see that, you know, there wasn't that option. I guess to be fair, people who are junior level, maybe no other languages, like the languages that they learn in college or the languages they're teaching in the the code boot camps and whatnot. But I wish there was something we could do to bridge that gap for junior mm-hmm. engineers. When I took Bruce Tate's Live View class over the summer with all of my free time, we did have in that class, there was one guy whose first programming language was Elixir and he learned it with Bruce. And I could not tell that he had only started programming like eight months ago. He was mm-hmm. great. He contributed a lot of great, you know, 
thought to when we're passing the keyboard around and like programming together, like mob programming, I think it's called when it's more than two people. It was great. And, you know, I really couldn't tell he, he picked it up so well. And, and some of that is the developer, but I think part of that is the language. Yeah, I think the paradigms in the language definitely help leverage, right? Leverage people's skills, et cetera. I think I'm curious also what you all, do you all ever get questions from clients about like hiring, et cetera, when you were working in Elixir? Are clients ever worried about being able to hire Elixir developers? Because I've definitely run into that in the past when choosing tech to work on. It's come up a little bit. We had one project that we started and then I don't know if we helped them hire, but it also turned out that they hired an ex smart logic employee. I don't remember how that happened, but so like that comes up a little bit. We also have not necessarily like another project we have, the main team is in node and Mongo. And we kind of came on as saying like, we can help your, your node app was like kind of slow and like we can help pull stuff into Elixir where it's like really good at, at doing all this. They haven't, really looked into the elixir side yet so the goal of what we were hoping didn't really happen but they also haven't had an issue with running the application i guess yeah that's fair i was just curious to see yeah Yeah. and i will say as a note if there are any companies listening in or somebody who's thinking about starting a company you don't have to hire elixir devs either you can just hire good developers who are willing and excited to pick up a new language Mm -hmm. and maybe particularly they're excited to learn elixir but I think that provides a lot of really good opportunities to have really good developers. And I did run into some of those jobs over the summer too, where people were like, oh, we don't care if you don't know this language or that language. Like we just want to know that you're, you know, you're a good fit for our team and that you, you know, learn quickly and will work well with us. And I really appreciated those interviews because I really just felt like they invested in their people. And that's always good to see. Anything else you all want to wrap up with before we sort of like sort of close out for today. Any other advice, any other social media plugs, whatever, whatever, what, what you got? So why is Wallaby called Wallaby when there's also a Wallaby JS? We were first. Testing. We were first. <laughs> we were first. You can go and look. We were first. They ripped us off due to our extraordinary amount of popularity. That's what I have to say about that. Good job, Keith. I think the only note or plug I will say is just if you enjoyed this and you, you know, want to hear more adoption stories, adopting Elixir stories, tune into season five of this podcast. Yeah. We're going to have a lot of great guests this podcast, this season. It's going to be awesome. So I totally agree with that. (laughs) Make sure that you come check us out at our podcast called Elixir Outlaws. We don't know what we're talking about this season, so it'll be a surprise. Yeah. yeah. You guys seasons, seasons are either. So <laughs> we're not... Yeah, we don't have seasons either, so, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's just a running dialogue. Of... If you all want to hear us listen to Keith Lee's jokes, tune in. Yeah. And who doesn't? Let's be honest. Well, you know. <laughs> and if you're listening at this point, we want to hear from the audience for, I guess, all of our podcasts probably, but definitely Elixir Wizards want to hear from the audience and hear what they thought of this and well, ideas for future episodes, future seasons. We really love hearing from the audience. It really means a lot. It makes me cry, not completely irregularly. I am rather sensitive. I know it doesn't look that way. But no, it's really touching when people reach out. So please do reach out and follow us on all the socials, Insta, Twitter. I'm just use a pen everywhere. Chris, I'll let you give the real outro. 
yeah, don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave us a comment on iTunes. It helps us, uh, helps people find the show when you leave us a review. And we really do appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guests, Eric, Justice, and Sunday. We appreciate you for being on the show. Don't forget Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we are always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects, including yes, Kubernetes, and mobile <laughs> apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. I got to admit, uh, you, this is probably much more challenging than for us to swap roles because like, I don't know, with script and all that. You mean it's more challenging in the sense that like us coming on your show is more challenging? Well, like, it would be really hard for me to pretend to be you because you're funny. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I imagine it's also it's hard for, Nailed it. <laughs> it's probably also hard for you to pretend to be us because we're organized. And so, yeah, exactly. Would, right, there was, you go. Adam's like, I'm organized. <laughs> definitely hard to be organized. It's, yeah. We're, and I, we're not. <laughs>